every tour, if people come to the bar, just ask the beer tender and they'll tell you the story and show you the piece of the space shuttle and you get to kind of like hold this whole thing in your hand. I'm Jeff Moriarty. I'm one-third founder, president, CEO, head brewer, and 10 other functions. This week we're in St. Paul, Minnesota. Recording one of the very first episodes of the Minnesota tour of Washington Beer Talk, we're at Tin Whiskers Brewery, which is an interesting natural phenomenon that affects both electrical engineers and space shuttle designers alike. Let's listen to Jeff Mortiardi explain what that means, as well as talk about what sets his brewery apart from the others and talk a little bit about Minnesota beer law. Washington Beer Talk is supported by Craft Beer Club. If you're listening to this, then I suspect you're a big fan of beer. Craft Beer Club ships a monthly crate of carefully chosen beers straight to your door. If you need a good gift idea for the drinker that has everything, I bet they'd still appreciate a bit of beer. You can get delicious beer and support the Cycling Cicerone by following the link in the description on the blog or by going to cyclingcicerone.com slash beer club. That's cyclingcicerone.com slash beer club. I'm your host, the Cycling Cicerone, and this is Washington Beer Talk. Well, back in 2006 in Minnesota, we didn't have really a great industry. In terms of craft beer, it was not a th- much of a thing. We had Summit, Surly, Shells. I think in the entire state, there was a better part of 13 breweries for 5 million people. We had some out-of-state type products coming in, but not a lot. And so if you wanted to kind of experience other beer styles and try other kind of different beers, you kind of had to brew your own at that point in time. And that's kind of how I fell into it. Some of my coworkers were home brewers as well, and that's kind of helped impetus you know like hey it'd be kind of something fun to do and of course you pick up the how to brew book by john palmer and you just fell in love with it and kept doing it so so yeah i did that for four years before kind of wanting to start my own brewery you did the home brewing thing for a little while you're working electrical engineering meanwhile and then one day said screw it i'm out i'm gonna quit my job and start a brewery how did that process kind of go I had one of these, my grandfather was really inspired me. He's got one of these American stories that I feel like, you know, is part of Americana, but I don't know if many people have a relative <laughs> that have done this, but um, he graduated high school in our hometown. I grew up in a town of North Branch, just about 45 minutes north on the interstate from here. Uh, graduated high school, started working in a tool dye shop and worked there for six years of his life. But in that intervening six years, he became the sole owner of the company somehow led it through three massive expansions. I think he grew the company about a $12 million business. And so it's just kind of this remarkable story of no college education to start off with and raising five kids. And it just kind of really inspired me. After a few years of engineering for other people, I was starting to dabble with like, hey, how do I start my own company? And, you know, kind of really inspired to do that. Tried a few different engineering stuff. Nothing escaped the napkin, so to speak. That's kind of how it went. And then it was just like, you know, when I, you engineer for 50, 60 hours a week to go home and like engineer another 50, 60 hours a week, oh, boom. It just was never going to happen. But beer was different. We get the same. Brewing and like engineering are very similar to me. Like the whole like high level context of combining art and science to make a product is just changed the medium to something more fun like beer. And it's just more exciting, more to learn. So I was dabbling with some Irish pub type ideas. My last name's Irish. And then toured Surly and Flat Earth locally in town 2010 and listened to their startup stories and just got really inspired because I think I was 25 at the time but these guys had no commercial brewing experience and I'm like well I don't either so they did it there's a potential and did some market analysis and then reached out to see who wanted to help start up the company and two of my co-workers and slash friends I met at the university uh, agreed to help. Their involvement in a brewery was on financial side basically. They were there as part of the hype squad 
pretty much. Um, I mean, they did some stuff. One guy was kind of the crazy idea guy, but his ideas were pretty crazy. But, you know, and the other guy was the other guy I actually started brewing with. Uh, we actually got a kit together and actually started brewing together first. And then, yeah, they helped. They were there for the four years and for a little bit after it started, and then, then they kind of moved on. Are they not really part of the show anymore at all? Any, no, they still have room? their ownership. They attend board meetings, you know, kind of participate that way. I like how your email sign-off and your voicemail sign-off both say Slancha. <laughs> uh, and you mentioned the Irish last name. One of the things I've noticed a lot while talking to a lot of these small breweries is everyone likes to pick a theme, right? You, you kind of pick a niche. Not really, not a niche, because everyone sort of brews the same beer, but they, they pick, a, pick a theme. For you, you picked the tin whiskers, electrical engineering, circuit board, flights, all that kind of cool stuff. But you also have that like slight tinge of Irish in there. How's the maybe like that your Irish background sort of bled into the culture or, or the theming around here or perhaps into the beer? You know, I, I wedge it in as much as I can a little bit when it's appropriate. Mm. It doesn't like distract from the mother brand of electrical engineering too much. But I like to work it in there. Actually, in some locations were different than this. Our location is very industrial very natural lighty, but a few of the other places are a little bit more darker, and so it's been definitely more of a pub feel to it than my Irish uh, background called, has been a big part of like my identity that I've kind of taken on. I love Irish music, and we play that a lot at the brewery when the employees let me. Um, we have a big St. Paddy's Day party. St. Paddy's Day is huge in, in downtown St. Paul, but oh, yeah. I you know I bring in like Irish bands because I've connected with some Irish music schools, and um, I get the bagpipes always to come play for different beer releases. No and they, way. And they come in for free to play, and just because I give them like free beer and, um, and then yeah, like my, my sign off and a lot of um, a lot of that is you know cilantro, which is Irish cheers. Essentially, it's uh, drinking to your health. So I think that's just really cool sounding and and a little bit of my you know identity. Yeah. You know, my staff sometimes pushes back a little bit on it. Oh, in what way? Go on. Uh, I don't know. It hasn't been it's, it hasn't been a while. Other than the Irish music, they don't let me play usually. Yeah. Although they make me listen to their emo shit every so often, and it's just sometimes I have to like look at them like, no, we're done, change the <laughs> station. <laughs> I was at a brewery in Seattle. They did the same. They did the same thing. The uh, if you're there when the brewery is open, it plays sort of the standard, you know, low key pop kind of music that yeah. I guess comes in the, the restaurant package that you get, you're allowed to play, right? The Muzak or whatever. But if you go there during off hours, they're blasting Metallica or they're blasting something, you know, something you haven't quite listened to for a while and you're like, what is going on? Like, how come your music tastes haven't changed at all? <laughs> uh, I, my first head brewer, he was in, well, him and another brewer at the time were into like epic metal rock. Yeah. And so, I mean, it's after a few hours, you just feel so angry and I had to go like change it. And then I had like a beer tender that would put on literally like, in my opinion, risk slitting music. And I'm like, dude, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> we're not trying to make people want to, you know, kill themselves here. <laughs> um, that's so weird. I don't know why that's not the first time. This isn't the first time I've heard that problem. It's like, maybe, you know, it, it might have something to do with like, just the fact that the people who work in breweries have their own taste in music and the people who drink at breweries have a different taste in music, just like the people who run kitchens have their own taste in music. You know, they all just are like, they always, <laughs> they don't overlap. Oh, it's different. And actually yeah. the, one of the new brewers I have now is into like Islander type music, you know? So like, like steel drums? Like, <laughs> no, like, you know, you know, like Caribbean, you know, that yeah, kind yeah, of yeah. like 
beach bum music. I don't yeah, know yeah, yeah. how else to describe it. He's just pretty chill. Yeah. He's a pretty chill guy, so. Yeah. <laughs> that might be kind of fun, but definitely not on brand. <laughs> Do you have like on brand music for electrical engineering? I always feel like there's like some pretty cool, not like, like, I don't know, synth music, techno, not like, not sandstorm necessarily, but you know, like just uh, you know, that Tron was, music. That was a point of a discussion with me and the, the two guys I started with, because the one guy definitely wanted it to be like tied theme music, but I'm, I mean, Come on, your your brewery is supposed to be like all welcoming and encompassing, so you kind of pick the lowest denominator when the tap rooms open. Yeah. Because you're not gonna people might leave this techno plane or Yeah, yeah. I, mean, exactly. I don't mind it, but but yeah, I mean, that was a discussion and now we just let whoever works kind of choose. There's another brewery in Seattle as well where they play only metal music in the tasting room. So when everyone's there, they're only playing metal. And it's not like, it's not always the low key metal like Metallica and that, that's not even metal, right? They would play like real thrasher metal. And these guys all are like the ZZ Top biker beards. Like the, it's insane and it's like part of their style. And so you go there, you go to this one brewery to listen to metal music while you drink, but they also don't like to brew IPAs. They think that IPAs are a rat race beer and they they refuse to brew them, but they'll brew like a dry hopped pale ale and kind of like push into the IPA territory, but try not to. Anyway, whatever, moving on. In the middle of a lot of um, conversations I've had recently, there's brewers that want to brew just whatever they want to drink. You know, their beer, they got into brewing because they want to make 9% smoked porters and stouts and whatever and there's other brewers that don't like well <laughs> there's not other brewers that don't want to do that and would rather brew whatever what's selling but there's other brewers that try to balance that a little harder i would say what, what would you say your brewery is yeah you, you probably do you you do you have a pretty good balance here i'm drinking your centennial ipa uh the flip switch uh, which is delicious by the way oh thank you i, I honestly kind of came in saw something ordered it it's my first time in a brewery. Didn't have a lot of chance to look at the menu. How would you describe your beers? We we play the balance game. You got to have stuff that sells. And whether or not I personally like it doesn't always matter. Um, Do you brew beer that you don't like? Is there any beer here that you just think, oh God, why did I brew a Kolsch? I actually like Kolsch's. I mean, each beer has its own time and place. Whether it's my like favorite or my go-to or one I actually will consume outside of like having food. Um, there's a few of those. You know, our main flagship, the Wheatstone Bridge, just. It's a honey chamomile wheat, very chamomile forward. Goes great with really spicy food, Asian food. But outside of that, as a beer for me, like it's just not my jam. Um, but people love it. It's very unique in the market here. And like most people, I'm kind of on a hophead. But I also like to like move around seasonally and whatever's new type deal. So we try, you know, to do that. We try to have a wide breadth of styles. Um, we were kind of late to making multiple IPAs uh, around here just because. I felt like there's all these styles and why... So why waste four slots on IPAs? Yeah. Consumers have dictated somewhat otherwise, but we try to still have a very balanced uh, lineup. We get told that all the time. I mean, it doesn't maybe generate as much money as like eight IPAs probably would or being known for that, but there's a different subset of people that do appreciate that. Um, so we've actually expanded into a lot of other IPAs. We have a Hazy, we have a New England style, um, we have a West Coast, this Waveform, which is like my current favorite. You know, we try to make different styles on IPA and not just like oh, it's just another American IPA, like, boring. Maybe um, we can talk a little bit more about the, like, having multiple IPAs versus just having one. In, in my experience, I'm like, and I drink a lot. I go to a lot of breweries. I drink a ton of IPAs. But I, if I go to a brewery that's got four IPAs on tap, personally, and I think, I imagine most people are like me, but I guess not, 
I would never order one IPA and then go, oh, that was good. Let me try their other IPA, right? I would never go down the list of IPAs and eventually try to decide which one of those was my favorite. That seems tedious to me. I think I, is I would have the IPA, I'd switch over to the coffee porter, I'd switch over to the Kolsch, I'd try the Pilsner. You know, I'd, I'd bounce around if I had four drinks in me. Yeah. Um, and, like, if you do a flight of IPAs, you're just going to blast your palate. Like, there's no way to really appropriately do that. Yeah. So what do you think is going on there? Like, obviously, making more IPAs is going to make you more money. You just sell more beer like that way. But what's, yeah, what's up with that? Consumers become very boring, and frightfully so. Like, you put out different kinds, like, we have pretty unique stuff out. I mean, it's moving, but it's not, like, on fire moving. Like uh, Cactus Hibiscus Wheat Ale, called the Electric Love. Great beer, especially for this tart, you know, hot weather. It's very tart, sour-like. You think that would blow up? It should, you know, you think it would, but no. We did an IPA in a can, and that blew up. And then, like, even barrel, when it comes to even, like, things like barrel aging, like, we age, like, wheat wines in tequila barrels. People only seem to really get excited about a porter in a bourbon barrel. It is just a little bit boring. I, like, I want to brew, like and ESB and all this other stuff to put in package and it's just kind of like unless it flies you know it's kind of hard to justify that but we're adding eight more tap lines here at the brewery and we're about to open that up a lot more okay so we'll have a few more IPAs on um and then have just a wide breadth of styles we can tolerate having a slower mover on tap you know kind of deal I thought you guys have a shandy on tap that is not common in Seattle uh but you've got the 2.7%. Oh, so, the Rattler, yeah. The Rattler, yeah. Yep. And you actually called it a Rattler. I was just having this conversation earlier about how... Shandy's lemonade. Specifically lemonade. lemonade specifically lemonade. And you've got a pomegranate Rattler. Rattler. A Rattler is, yeah, soda. Okay. A Shandy could be any, like, straight up, like, juice. Like, uh, lemonade or, like, limeade or whatever, but... Okay, good. I was literally just today talking about it because I had a bunch of Shandies today and then... Don't drink them in Seattle often. Like the Liney's Shandy makes it out there, but like no one brews them. But was in Germany and they have Rattlers. Like they sell Rattlers everywhere. Wherever you go, you get a Rattler. Do you know the history of the Rattler? No, I don't. It actually fits you perfectly. Yeah. So in German, they call it a a, a Rattler Moss, I think. Mm-hmm. And it's a It's called in German. I mean, cyclist ale. So people biking around in Bavaria would drink this as a low alcohol alternative while they're biking around. No way. Yeah. Oh, man, that is just, that's too good. Yeah, that's exactly on theme for me. So yep. you guys also, so you distribute locally, uh, I guess. Yep. How, how far out do you guys get? I call the territory East Central Minnesota. Best way to describe it. So it's the metropolitan Twin Cities metro, metro area, mm-hmm. all the way up to almost Duluth. You're a relatively young brewery, and you've got beer on shelves. That is, in Seattle, not a thing that you can, that's easy to pull off. Is that unique here in Minnesota, or is that like, uh, is that something you can, or or can most breweries opening expect to get on shelves, at least more or less? I mean, it was for a while. We opened and were operating before the big, like, crushing wave of new brewery openings kind right. of happened, so we were able to establish ourselves. Yeah, four, four years is actually pretty old. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. We self-distribute, so which helps. And so then we also use a distributor in the outer metro area. But we have, you know, accounts like Target, which is corporately based here, which helps immensely. And, wow. you know, they're all about the kind of the craft thing and local. And, you know, most of their their store managers are pretty open to bringing stuff in. So it was pretty easy for us for the most part. I mean, people had to try the liquid before they bring it in. Nowadays, it seems a little easier, but now shelf space is kind of like dwindling. So it's, I don't know how it's going for some of the other breweries. But yeah, it's pretty common for most liquor stores that carry crowlers 
So they're just like, filling crawlers back at the brewery, bring them over to the liquor yeah, store. And they self-distribute then to the <laughs> to the liquor store, which is just a little mind blowing. Let's talk about the laws and how they like maybe you know the, the history of the laws a little bit. So on twenty before twenty eleven, the AKA Taproom Law, AKA Surly Bill. The Surly Bill. That's named after the Surly brewery uh, it's a big big brewery here yeah. called surly brewing company it's just pretty much a clone of stone or three floyds to be honest in terms of brand imagery because he wanted to build this mega brewery which he eventually did um with a big restaurant pushed to get the taproom law in mm-hmm. and that opened the door uh, at the time before then a brewery of a certain size of less than ten thousand barrels could self-distribute uh, so you don't have to go through a distributor to do that once you exceeded that, actually now the limit's been raised to 20,000 barrels. Once you exceed that, you have to divest from that after you know a certain period of time to a mm. distributor. And then in Minnesota, we even now have two different licenses. We have a brew pub, which operates a restaurant, has to, can sell off-sale through the premise through growlers or 750 milliliter bottles. It can have multiple locations, but they can't like distribute. And now recently with the taproom law, you know, the lines get a little closer, but a production brewery with a taproom license can have a restaurant if they choose or not to, but they can only serve their beer and they can distribute. Whereas like a brew pub can have anyone's beer, any alcohol, you know, just like a bar. Yeah, but uh, they would probably primarily serve their own beer. Do you guys get some number of guest taps that you're allowed to do? In Seattle, you can have up to 25 or 20% guest taps if you uh, wanted to serve a cider or like, a, like you could do a local wine, but you could have a local cider. A brew pub can do whatever they want. Okay, but you can't. You have to serve only yours. You can't only even... my beer that's produced here. We're only allowed one location. It's kind of a fight between the brew pub owners and the brewery people, but the same token, like, you can easily be a brew pub and distribute. You just have to give up wine and spirits and other people's beer. Right. Because you can have a restaurant, and they like to make a big stink about it. Partly because a lot of them have big chains now. With a taproom license, you're only allowed one, and so they would have to, to divest from okay. pretty much most of the restaurants that is very different in seattle so or you know what honestly the way the laws all work i can think of examples of seattle where one there's a brewery elysian just got bought by budweiser Mm -hmm. a couple years ago um and they had like four brew pubs around town and they all had what you could buy whatever alcohol you wanted there and they had full bars and they were full restaurants but they also distributed everywhere so like that's totally different that was before they ever got bought by budweiser so that's yeah, that's like an example of someone, of people in Washington getting everything, getting best of both worlds over here. So you guys got to pick one, pick one side. Um, Which is know, a point kind of, of focus. contention. But yeah. on the same token, you can easily switch. Yeah. You know, you don't need multiple locations. You know, it just, I don't think it'll ever reconcile. Some brewers are fine with it. I'm personally, yeah, not so much. I feel like if you're going to hang your head on your beer, then go hang your hat on the beer and change your license. So you like your taproom license, you'd never even bother with a brewer li- with a, the brew pub license. You wouldn't you wouldn't switch over. No. You no. like being able to distribute. And- yeah, I like that. That's where, you know, growth is unless you have capital to like it's plus you have to then make it, you have to have a kitchen or it's yeah. here I don't. Yeah. Which is great cuz we have like great restaurants in our building that we're in downtown. We have like a Saudi, it's a Thai restaurant and then we have like Black Sheep Pizza, which is a coal-fired pizza joint, great pizza. And so it just works out really well for us. Like any state, it's really weird. Here, it's weird that, you know, for off-sale for a brewery, the law is so stupid, it switches units. So the law said that we could sell you a 64-ounce container or a 750-milliliter bottle. 
So I can't sell you a 22 ounce bomber, which actually is cheaper bottle to buy than a 750, because it's three ounces less than, a, than a 750. What the? Fuck? And so we've been as a guild pushing to like, can we make this a range? Like, how about we make it like a half liter to two liters, like, and put it all into like, I don't know, one unit system. Yeah. Kind of deal. That's so funny. Well, because you know, the 64 ounces is like a pretty standard growler fill, and then uh, and yeah, the 750 is wine bottle sized like that makes no sense it's not bomber sized so yeah they got tripped up somewhere along the way those laws weren't written by brewers <laughs> no and and actually you know the distributors have such a clout in this state like they like literally like own legislators oh they yeah they, they got it right because For the most part or, or or else you wouldn't be always buying your alcohol in liquor stores right because that's the kind of thing that doesn't make enough sense to, to survive by itself. It's kind of a well, prohibition, yeah. you know, post-prohibition kind of law. Oh, yeah. And so, like, with, what, two two producers in the state? We have, like, Shells, and then you had, like, Summit. Um, so there's less brewers than distributors. And with craft being new, with people wanting craft, like, AB, InBev, Miller, and Coors, like, pretty much would put the screws to the, the wholesalers. And so the wholesalers would protect themselves, which makes sense, but times have changed. And actually, what really changed? Two two of the tiers are actually have a unholy alliance with each other. So, the MBLA, the Liquor and Restaurant Associations, essentially tier of have kind of matched up with the, the distributors, and then the Teamsters are thrown in there because of the distributors. So it's just like they, so it's it's an ongoing battle, and we have a lobbyist that keeps tabs. Actually, one of the big changes that happened last year was you couldn't buy alcohol on Sundays unless it was three two. What? Unless it was three two? Yeah. What does that mean? We're one of the few states that had have three uh, two licensing. Three point two percent alcohol ABV. Yep. That you can buy in grocery stores. Yep. Actually, and yep. it's you in Utah, right? Pretty much in Utah, I just got rid of it. So Minnesota, I mean, three two is going away. Okay. Uh, oh, good. Essentially, but which brings its own problem of okay, we have the targets, uh, the high V's, you know, these big chains. That drive grocery, uh-huh. they're eventually going to push because right now all of the liquor stores have to be separate entrances. So Target has a liquor store, but you can't access it from inside Target. You can, but as you access as you leave, oh, like you know they have that yeah. big vestibule, like there's yeah. another door to liquor store there. <laughs> but they're smart, unlike the Cub Food like, uh, grocery chain, um, where the main exit from the grocery, like you walk right by it. Mm-hmm. So they like they placed it perfectly, and yeah, you have to kind of technically leave the store in a way to like get access to it. Concern is that they'll push to have it in the store, you know, which makes me obviously concerned about the big distributors. I'm more worried about big distributors than necessarily am about AB InBev and Miller Coors, although they will dictate, you know, the cooler sets. But with the store, at least there's certain people always there for you to talk to that run the store and manage the store. Whereas if there was part of main grocery, like, so you'd say you kind of like the liquor store move because you've got a smaller set of people you got to talk to and fewer fewer buyers, fewer, fewer retailers you got to schmooze in terms of just getting shelf space, right? Would you yep. say, you'd say yep. that makes it easier for you? Way easier. And so some of the larger breweries are all in favor because it's going to, oh, make their sales go bigger. And it's yeah. like, well, yeah, good for you. We have a wide breadth of styles and stuff, but really when it comes down to designing a beer, I'm all about very complex flavors but they always have to be in balance it's that's the hard part of making recipes you know people can anyone throw together a beer it's not that hard but making it balanced and taking time to iterate so we have a very iterative process to our development much like an engineer where we'll brew a bunch of pilot batches on a one barrel system and release them to the public usually side by side like two different variants 
and people vote on it and give us feedback and we take that back into development. They vote on it or they like vote with their wallets? No, they vote on it too. Like they give them a comment card, they select how many, like one out of five, do they think of it? Um, we, st you know, put statistics to that. We give just general like comments, like what did you like and what did you not like, you mm -hmm. know, kind of deal and kind of look at that and kind of see similarities based on analyzing the data. The beer I'm drinking right now is your Flip Switch IPA. Yep. Um, is this one of your flagships? Yeah. I think it is. It's like the that mainstay, always on tap. That one's been around since the beginning. I We've imagine. been tweaking it as of recently. I was going to say, I imagine it's been iterated on it a few times. Let me tell you what I taste in it, and then maybe you can tell me a little bit about the process that this beer has undergone from you know beginning to end. So I think it's, you were mentioning your balance, and I think the balance is like definitely present in this beer. I can taste like, it's got a good hop, it's not like an insane bitterness, standard IPA bitterness, I guess, nothing. You're not going overboard. The hop flavors, like, they are complex. Like, they're a little bit fruity, a little bit bubblegummy. You kind of get a little bit of that pininess in there, like maybe a little bit, maybe I'm making that up. Maybe I just looked at the hops and thought, is there pininess? I know I've been making that up. But it's also got a really good sweetness and malt balance to it. It's got like a crunchy, not like roastiness to it, but like, I don't know, toasty. Yes, almost. Um, and I think it really does have a really good balance. So yeah, that's just a, to your point, I, I like it a lot. So maybe, so tell me how this, how this started off and where it went and how it got to where it is now. And if any of that shit I said was true. No, I mean, you hit the, hit the point kind of on the head. At the time this was designed, it was, I mean, we iterated eight times in my basement where this was starting up for four years before we settled on that. And then once you brought it to the big plan, it goes through iterations too, as you get used to utilizations and stuff like that. But the impetus was like, at the time there's a lot of like very pine forward IPAs. It was kind of like the shtick or floral. And so, you know, this uses Citra and like, it was kind of new onto the market and this was 2010-ish timeframe. So we thought, oh, I'm gonna make more of a citrus fruit forward IPA. We did, but we also wanted it to be balanced and, you know, add a, a good malt character to it, not just be one dimensional, just hops, you know. Um, so that's kind of what was the, the impetus to that. And so when he went to select it, it was like, okay, you know, what, what malts do we like? And, you know, we were munching on malts and really like Maris Otter, so that's the base. It gives it a very kind of toasted or toast type quality. I actually just love that base malt. We use it a lot um, just because of its flavor. I don't know if, if you ever malt, munt, went to like a homebrew store and munched on malt, like American Pale is just kind of so blah. I mean, it's just boring. And then, you know, you have this Maris Otter and these other heirloom variety of malts are trying to like make, or, you know, just different kind of flavors. And so then we wanted to like add some caramel to it and give it that red hue as well as provide some of that more of a, you know, caramel note to it. You know, we layered in the fruit hops, four different kinds, using different, different processes. Some right at the boil, start of the boil, you know, through the boil and then the different dry hop. You know, as time's gone on, recently we've been looking at, okay, the caramel content in there and, and time dealing with that. Sometimes the beer, I think through our maltzer, gives kind of a smokiness, which just really is disjointed and pisses me off. That's sort of unexpected. So yeah. we've been like, we thought it was warrior. I got in a little spat with one of the larger people. Did you? A little bit. Do you want to talk about that? You know, not really. I okay. guess we'll see what happens. Yeah. You know, it's... This also brewery is just kind of a sellout anyway. Like they can't stand on their own beer, so they're like running around like making a house beer for like every chain they can get their hands on. Or even they made one for a grocery store. Yeah. Like what the, or a radio station. And it's just kind of like, Yeah. how about you? I don't know. 
That's kind of well. I don't Stand know. on your own brand in a way. But. I, I mean, I guess that makes sense. But at the same time, like I enjoy the going to a like a random bar and seeing they have a house beer, and then kind of going, oh, that, like a house beer. I can definitely only get that here, even if it ends up being the same IPA they're rebranding for all these places. Um, but like you, oh yeah, you can kind of only technically get the unicorn IPA at Unicorn Bar, and uh, like that's kind of neat. And uh, I don't know, but. I mean, it is to a point. Yeah. But when you do it for everyone, yeah, you just water down, right? I guess that makes sense. Because we I, do that a little bit. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. But it's very select. There's usually a strong relationship with a very small restaurant or yeah. maybe a local chain that we get offered to do a beer for a quarter kind of deal. Like, but, would you put a you put a house beer maybe at Black Sheep or something? But they probably serve your beer. Wait, can they? They can. Okay. That's another point of contention. Go on. <laughs> They don't. Oh. <laughs> like, I give you all this money. Like, people, like, it takes one person to order a pizza. And sometimes they just bring us a, the staff a pizza just to get the smell in here, and people, like, call and order like crazy. Oh, those fuckers. And it's like, <laughs> I'm like you know, if you just offered my product there, the, you might get more money. And they're selling your beer. It's not like you're uh, yeah. you're making the money, or <laughs> they're, they're making money off selling your beer. Yeah. So yeah, they've kind of been written off after a few years. Oh, but man. the Thai restaurant has like three of our beers on. We make a special infusion for them. Oh, no way. Using like Thai, like main ingredients. Of, yeah. Like, lemongrass and basil and, oh God, I forget. There's a couple other ingredients. Yeah. I think ch- Thai chilies. I think Ooh. those are the three. Oh man, that's good. Do you guys make a 3.2 beer that you can sell? No, we don't. And now with it kind of seemingly is going away, I mean, we looked at it, but, like, the cost on that is so cheap. And it's like our facility is 5,000 square feet. Half of it's tap room. So we can produce about 2,100, 2,500 barrels a year. Like, we just don't have, like, the volume space to do a low Waste margin. Waste on a low, yeah. Um, but it was a thought. But then you have to deal with then, like, not only, like, grocery, grocery, but then, like, convenience store stuff. Mm-hmm. You were talking earlier about the 20 barrel, 20,000 barrel limit. Um, you just said you maybe brew 2,500 barrels. Uh, are you guys on a, like a, a growth plan to maybe hit that 20K barrel limit and have to divest from your uh, self-distribution? Are you thinking about that? Are you going to stick around in the, you know, 5K, whatever kind of range? How's your, what's your growth look like, I guess, is the question I'm asking. You know, one thing, you know, four years down the road, you look at in hindsight, you wish you would have done differently was... In my case, pick a different location. But at the time we did it, we picked the lowest risk option. What was, so this was a low risk option, why was that? It's well situated, we're right downtown uh, St. Paul. There's 400 units of condos above us. There's 10,000 people live downtown. A lot going on down here, or has been as time's gone on. So we picked it for a strong taproom location in that regard. And something with that we viewed as being lower risk is that control what you can control, which is location, location, location. And where you're going to get all your money, at least to start, your tap room. And you have, we had no idea. We've never done distribution at all. Like, we've learned all of this. I mean, I've taught myself everything uh, as I've went along and just had, like, good advisors and stuff. But it was a low risk is put your money where you're going to make your margin in the tap room. And uh, we did that. And we found this great location. Like, if you've been to Portland, to me, this reminds me of, like, a Portland brewery. Oh, absolutely. St. Paul very much is, like, Portland to me. Just a little bit edgier. Yeah. You know, in terms of, but the physical feel of the city is very similar and this is a very similar like turn of the century old building and just loved it and, and the all the natural light and glass and it's just great but it's very space constrained we have exactly like 5,000 square feet 
there's no way to get more down here unless one of my like restaurant neighbors decides to sell and I can move like taproom operations there. The big move then to like keep growing was to build a second facility, which we worked on all last year for quite a while before the market. I mean, we had 30 breweries open last year, so the market's just come saturated uh, literally within months. So all of a sudden, all the good brewing spots. No, actually, up. I found one. It was great. Uh, same on the same water supply as what we're currently on, which is a huge That's thing important. for me. Um, I guess I'm one of the few breweries that actually cares, but it does matter to me. Found it, loved it. But with the market changing as quickly as it was, and then the complexities of, I have 40 investors, plus you have the bank, and then you're looking at taking on a whole nother facility, like that's a $3 million nut to bite off and like try to get every, you know new money in and old money and, and the bank and the bank and all the married. Like it was just, it was being ahead against the wall. And with the market the way it was, it just kind of was abandoned. And glad it did, because if I actually would have succeeded and built that, like, Oh, shit. You would have had to fight I all would, this new growth. And... I would be in the super trouble of, like, beer as a category is seen like, I think, craft beer itself saw, like, what, a 2% growth last year? So the beer segment isn't growing double digits. So if you banked on growing at double digits, well, and you have $3 million loan, like, that's... It's a scary bank payment. It just 2% be... seems low. I knew it would drop below that double-digit threshold, but... You know, yeah. I, I I thought I heard a 2% number, but I could be wrong. Yeah. It's been a while. I don't know either. Maybe this year's 2% or so far this year. I don't know. It's not strong. I mean, yeah. If we weren't able to keep plopping fermenters down and put our own candy line in and stuff like that, like things could have naturally organically grown. Like Making the big transition steps is hard and difficult and expensive. And at this point, when the market saturates, it's kind of like, well... We've got a good spot here. We've got a good spot. Let's just hunker down. Eventually, we can buy all kinds of stuff on pennies on the dollar instead of paying a premium because commercial real estate, commercial construction is crazy expensive. And I think anyone hears the word brewery, they just mark it up because it's like, ooh, the hot thing. Like, we're all making money, like, hand over fist. And it's like, yeah, it's pretty capital intensive <laughs> kind of deal. It's like when someone says, can we rent this venue for our wedding? They're like... Yeah, sure, but it's 200% more. They're like, yeah, let me rent for my brewery. Okay, fine, double the rent. Yeah. <laughs> so you, you, you could open a second facility underneath your tap room license, or how does that work? Yep, but okay. only one location can have can a sell. tap room. So you can have like a separate production facility, and you can maybe, could you turn this into one big tasting room, which you have to produce here? Uh, you do have to technically produce some quantity. Okay, so it becomes your pilot brewery, and then your Pretty big much. place over there. I mean, you know, so this is a 15-barrel brew house we have here, the the pilot, but the other one was going to be like a 30-barrel yeah, yeah. You know, kind of facility. And, and a few breweries do do have that, like Fair State has two facilities, Fulton has two facilities, in terms of actual production. Mm. Some breweries have a lot of warehouse space, but they use secondary. Surly's got two breweries, actually. Then it's also like, you look at contract? You would pay another brewery to make your beer. It isn't viable right now to do that because we're trying to find a place in the market and stay relevant with literally 140 breweries now. Yeah. When I opened four years ago, there were 70. So it's been crazy growth. People want new, we give people new. Like we have a new beer launch in cans every month. It's exhausting. That is exhausting. That's a lot. <laughs> I know a lot of breweries that do one or two core brands. They kind of keep out having to launch a new beer every month is like, that's packaging, man. You got to just get made. That's no good. Yeah. So we, we do have two core brands, but then, yeah, so we went the route of labeling mm -hmm. the cans. And 
but it's still like, all right, we gotta get the label ordered and you know, be on top of all of that planning. What kind of stuff do you do to your water? You sound like you like it. St. Paul water is awesome. Yeah. And actually, um, so my house is in a suburb of St. Paul, and mm -hmm. so it gets its water from St. Paul. So when I was like looking to find where the brewery was gonna go, it's like, okay, we spent four years developing our beers on this water. Where can we put this yeah. brewery that has the same water? Because if you're going to spend $1.1 million on an investment, why make it riskier by then changing how your recipes are going to work? So I did a lot of research, and St. Paul has a regional water supply and goes to many of the burbs on this side of the river. St. Paul is pretty fascinating in that back in the day, uh, since Minneapolis is such a, a bad neighbor, they were polluting the, the water, um, St. Paul went up river on the Mississippi and took water before Minneapolis got their dirty hands on it, it made a channel and they channel it through about uh, a chain of four or five lakes on uh, the North Metro here that naturally will filter out the water through that and then they treat it and they blend it with a, you know, 10% of, of well water essentially. And so it's always stable. It's like perfect brewing water. It's not too hard, not too soft, just kind of right there in the middle. Um, we do some changes to season, you know, we add phosphoric acid, you know, to the mash and, you know, we'll do some changes with, um, lately with seasoning the beer with calcium chloride or stuff like that to either soften the water even more to get more of that juicy, sweeter flavor or, um, or go the other way and make it harder to give it more of a sharp sharpness, depending on like mainly with the IPAs. And the only thing we do with the water other than that is, is just carbon filter it to remove the, uh, chlorine. Yeah. That's good. I, I occasionally talk to brewers who um, sometimes scoff at the idea of, of doctoring our water at all. In Seattle, we've got pretty good water as well. Some of us are like, yeah, you know, we brew the water you have. It makes a more local beer, right? Like that's if it's how, if that's how it is. And then other brewers go, what the fuck? I buy reverse, I, re I, I have reverse osmosis water and I put every single salt into it. And, uh, and it's the exact water I want every single time. And you have people on that spectrum, but it's, it's always good that like, I think that I think the step, the crucial step really is caring about the water and doing what you're doing. So way to yeah. go. Talk about the, the name Tin Whiskers. So the name Tin Whiskers, so started by myself and my two friends. We're all electrical engineers, while men at the University of Minnesota getting double E degrees. And so when he set out to brand the company, he wanted something that tied the three of us strongly together because what makes a good brand, it's authentic, it's unique. It's different as what you would do in a situation like this. You would do a survey of what your commonalities are. We shared affinity for craft beer. The second highest one was our profession, our day jobs. So we're like, well, it seems like a good good way to go. And we looked at the brands all the time in 2010. A lot of them were very location-based brands or, you know, past-looking brands and imagery and stuff. And so, like, well, why don't we do it by a profession and make it more futuristic, forward-looking? So... How we came up with the name is as nerdy as we were. We worked downtown Minneapolis. We went to Happy Hour a lot. And so one day we brought engineering glossaries with us and sat around a table with our coworkers, literally reading out engineering glossaries. Uh, probably the nerdiest thing you'd ever do. This also was the most fruitless thing to do because, I mean, after a couple beers, it just is just a waste of time. But <laughs> through some other mechanisms, we came up with, um, with three names, actually. We had Tin Whiskers, we had Ohms Brewing, and we had Logic Ale. And so we hired a graphic designer. I like Logic Ale. That's got a good pun move to it. And uh, took those names and kind of worked with the graphic designer and what she thought maybe those word marks, you know, the initial logos would be like and kind of the feel of the brand. And 
um, ended up branding that all up, and then we did an informal focus group study of presented it to our friends, family, coworkers, strangers, and said, um, "What do you like?" And Tin Whiskers by far took the cake. Really? Uh, wasn't even like a contest. Because no one's gonna look at Logic Ale and go, because Logic has a different meaning to electrical engineers than it does to everyone else. Yeah. Even though I like the pun of it, Logic Ale, logical. I don't know. I like yeah. that a lot. And yeah, then, was... but yeah, Ohm Brewing is like that's way too. No one will know what that is. And Tin Whiskers, even if no one guesses what Tin Whiskers is, it's got a good ring. And then I think people like Tin Whiskers. Like I think they could think of a variety of things. Yeah. They actually got pegged for being cat people for a while, which is something we completely wanted to avoid. Yeah. And so when you're trying to brand up like a Tin Whisker, Tin Whiskers word mark. We struggle with that because, like, to draw a tin whisker would be like would make no sense. It has no context. You wouldn't really get it. And so, looked at a variety of other stuff. Eventually, I watched a lot of Futurama, mm-hmm. and I'm like, well, why not? I saw. A I liked your calculon, yeah. you know, mural up there. And I'm like, why not? You know, Bender. It's like so much electrical engineering goes into robotics, combined with like it drinks alcohol and beer. Like, hello. And so that's kind of how that came about. And yeah. cute, cuddly, like. Yeah. little creature completely unnamed and um and that's where that came about um the weird thing other than like showing what tin whisker is um was what the name stands for mm-hmm. you know we pride ourselves on making a high quality consistent product um unfortunately what a tin whisker is 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 the opposite of that it is an environmental defect that affects our circuit boards so in circuit boards we use tin as one of the metals to solder the component to the board well, tin in its pure form will start growing fine tin hairs on its surface. Literally, uh, the surface of the tin will start growing one layer of atoms at a time of fine tin hair. Um, it can be very short, up to four inches long. And when this happens on a circuit board, eventually it could cause a short circuit because that piece of tin would contact another pin and then it could short out your board and stop it from working. You know, you're kind of struggling with with that concept um, how the name of your brewery is like an actual imperfection and of course you try to brew perfect beer yeah and um you know in the circuit board industry they've dealt with this by diluting the purity of tin and i've talked to a few structural engineers and they really don't understand why tin and also zinc does this uh the latest hypothesis i heard from someone a few months ago is it's a shear force or because it's very specific at certain points it will create this tin, tin hair so that's kind of what a tin whisker is. The coolest thing about this name that was completely unexpected is shortly before we opened, if you were to like, or any time before we opened, if you were to Google the words tin whiskers, the first search return would be the NASA research website. NASA spends a lot of time and money researching why tin whiskers form, how to prevent them, you know, that kind of deal. Because tin whiskers are a problem in both space and Earth. In Earth, oh, you know, your phone maybe isn't working right or doesn't work at all anymore. Uh, whereas in space, you just lost your billion-dollar satellite. It's kind of a big deal. Yeah. So they spent a lot of time, money researching that. Well, around the time we soft open in May of 2014, we surpassed that as number one search return. And the NASA engineer that runs the website and the research group found out about it and emailed us and started giving us crap for displacing his boring website. I don't have no idea how this guy, like, how do you find out you've been displaced as the number one search? Like, are you constantly searching yourself? I mean, like, I don't get, I mean, it's his website. He runs the website yeah, and yeah. does the research, but yeah, it's just. Oh, you are. You're, you're TWBrewing.com. You're not Tin Whisker. We own both domains. Oh, okay, okay. Uh, so anyway, he starts emails back and forth. Like, this is like one of those, like, bullshit movie moments. Like, so serendipitous. Like, three weeks after the soft opening, this engineer comes into town for a Tin Whisker work conference. Like, legitly to talk about, you know, a working group about Tin Whiskers. We have a lot of defense contractors and stuff. He comes down uh, to the brewery, and uh, we get to meet him. He brought us a shadow box. Um, so back in the late 90s, 
they had a bunch of these card rails in the shuttle fleets. Yeah. And a card rail, like, there's two in a cabinet and a circuit board rides on the rail. Well, they tin-coated all the card rails. And so they all grew tin whiskers. So this is the late 90s. So they spent $4 million swapping out all the card rails throughout all the shuttles. And so he gives us a shadow box with a card rail from the Space Shuttle Endeavor with tin whisker growth on it. And the shadow box shines light at it because the only way you can see... It are so fine. Yeah. Sm- your few orders of magnitude smaller than human hair is through light reflection. And so, like, every tour, if people come to the bar, just ask the beer tender, and they'll tell you the story and show you the piece of the space shuttle, and you get to kind of, like, hold this whole thing in your hand. Like, it's, Oh, my God, that's it's, dope. It's just so cool. And actually, the, the engineer emails me about every eight, eight months or so, um, asking for more stickers and coasters. Yeah. Because he has people from all over the world um, write to him for tin whisker samples to do research on or whatever. And so when he sends them stuff, he throws in some of my swag, you know? kind of Gorilla Marcus people that will probably never come here, but, you know... Yeah, that's so funny. That's crazy. Love, like, well, one of these the days... Good, one of the good tin whiskers instead of the bad ones. Yeah. And kind of then took that as, you know, every one of the beer names is actual electrical engineering term. We're very rigid about that. Unless it's kind of a taproom draft only, and then it's just a style name. Gotcha. And then we'll, on our website, we explain what the name means. That can take a lot of iterations between me and marketing to explain that and we kind of sometimes try to pick names that are easier to explain than others but you know fit the brand and then we have the circuit board flight holders and you know kind of a core of our our identity is you know we're nerds and we're damn proud of it we believe everyone's nerdy about something and what does it mean to be a nerd you're just super passionate about it and you devote time and energy to it so we have like a monthly nerd night that rotates through we've had master gardeners in to talk about hop growing we've uh, a coffee tasting and a coffee roaster that we partner with come in and t- talk about that and Kind of fun celebrating nerdum. Sweet. Got the Dungeons and Dragons guys in here ever? Yeah, sometimes they come in. <laughs> Lately we have more Catan people. Oh yeah, you know, Catan. That's a good brewery game. Okay, we've been talking for a long time. You want to do a bonus round, like a lightning round real quick? Sure. Okay, how old are you? 34. Do you have any kids? Two. What is your favorite brew that you make here? Uh, currently Wave 4 and West Coast IPA. What is your favorite beer ever? Oh geez ever ever mm-hmm. I mean I guess I have to go nostalgic on it and go summit EPA because that's what got me into craft beer drink that from time to time kind of parking back to it alright dude it's been a pleasure thank yeah. you so much for yeah. chatting with me yeah thank you and uh, cheers Slancha. Slancha. that was Jeff Moriarty one third founder and the top dog at Tin Whiskers Brewery I know we're a little bit far from home so thank you for being on Washington Beer Talk Thank you so much for listening. This has been Washington Beer Talk. I'm your host, the Cycling Cicerone. If you want to get more episodes of the podcast, then go to cyclingcicerone.com slash podcast. They're all up there. You can get on a Google Play, Stitcher, iTunes, most of the places you can get podcasts. Don't forget to check out Craft Beer of the Month at cyclingcicerone.com slash beer club to support the podcast and get tasty beer. Gigantic Bicycle Fest is a three-day festival of music, biking, and the arts, and this year, yours truly is hosting the Beer Garden. If you want to help out, or if you're a brewer that wants to serve your beer at our Beer Garden, then hit me up. If you love biking, camping, art, or any combination of those, then register for a ride at giganticbicyclefest.org and use my promo code BEER for half off your admission. You can register for a 50-mile ride, a century ride if you're bold, or just come and enjoy the music festival and beer, August 24th to 26th. See you there. And last question, when was the last time you cried? Oh, geez. I don't know, a week ago? (laughs) 
What for? <laughs> what not? I don't know. I have a four and two year old. <laughs> okay, that's the second time I've done the lightning round and asked uh, when's the last time you cried, and that was the previous guy's answer too. He goes, yeah, I got, I got kids. What'd they do? I don't know, but I was crying in the cold room. The cold room is for crying. <laughs>